You're listening to the Ultimate Game Faces Podcast with your host, Rich Key, delivering insight into the fascinating life stories of his featured guests. We welcome to our Ultimate Game Faces Podcast, award-winning author, Jason Turbo. Jason will share with us his experience of writing They Bled Blue, an exceptional book that chronicles the 1981 Dodgers championship season. Today we welcome Jason Turbo, the author of They Bled Blue. I found it interesting in doing some research. Um, when we talk about They Bled Blue, the season of 1981 for the Los Angeles Dodgers, the subtitle was Fernando Mania, Strike Season Mayhem, and the weirdest championship baseball had ever seen. And that's absolutely true. I realized was in looking at some of the players that formed that team, you've got folks, Fernando, Lasorda, Steve Howe, Jerry Royce, Rick Monday, and even Jay Johnstone. And they're all southpaws. <laughs> what else would you expect from a left-handed athlete except the unexpected? Those central figures uh, made up that memorable season. You uh, you might be the first person to put Fernando Valenzuela kind of in the same wackiness bucket as Jay Johnstone. <laughs> the wacky, unique, and you had a chance to uh, spend some time with them, and that certainly is a central figure in your book. And I'd like to compliment you right off the bat. Having been around in that stadium, having a front row seat as a team photographer, I've seen a lot of books written about the 1981 season. My compliments, you had covered it unbelievably well and presented all of us readers with an exciting book uh, that takes us right in the middle of it, all the way through. So my compliments, and again, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Rich. Uh, it's, it's nice talking to you. And, and I will say, you know, the, the, the reason I was able to go so deep on those characters and that season is that so many figures central to that team and even ancillary to that team made time to fill me in on all of the relevant details. I mean, hours and hours and hours worth of conversations, um, you know, for each person really, really helped illustrate for me uh, the, the fabric of that season. And, and boy, it really was an interesting story. Jason, when you sat down and made that decision, we know that you were 11 years old, correct, in 1981? I was. And you were a Giants fan. <laughs> I was and am. But I think it's obvious with your work, your previous book of the Oakland A's and also baseball coach, you're a baseball fan first and foremost, I believe. For sure. I'm, I mean, I'm a baseball fan. Um, you know, I grew up as, as a kid and as a teenager, you know, really disliking the Dodgers partly because of the, the Giants-Dodgers rivalry that everyone knows about, and partly because my entire childhood was dark days for the Giants. I mean, they didn't win anything. <laughs> it was just terrible team after terrible team, and my entire extended family is in Los Angeles, completely made up of Dodgers fans, and all I heard every time we visited them or they visited us was how great the Dodgers are, and it hurt because it was true. <laughs> and so so I, I got a front-row seat to um, – you know, a, kind of a, a potent brew of jealousy and, and longing and you know, kind of downright candlestick bitterness at, at a pretty early age. That's a good reason to avoid holidays with the family, Jason. <laughs> forget, forget, forget Democrat-Republican divides. It's, this is Di Giants-Dodgers we're talking about. The name of the book is They Bled Blue, and it's a 
wonderful story about the 1981 World Series or the championship team throughout the entire season. And it was made up of some pretty phenomenal characters in uniform. And you took your book, and not only did you walk us through the season, you centered on the players, those figures themselves. And that's the beauty of the book. And any baseball fan, especially a Dodger fan, you just took us back to 1981. And uh, and I loved it. I I was amazed at Jason reading the book, having been there, seeing it from a different perspective, and saying to myself as I read the book, I go, my God, how the hell did Jason get this insight? Who is sitting there talking to him and where's his sources? I'm not asking for him, but I want to let you know it was as if you were there alongside of everybody else. It was phenomenal. Thank you, Rich. It, it, it's really heartening to hear that from somebody who was actually there. And that's, you know, that's that's my whole MO going into a giant project like this is to tell the truth as best as I can tell it, which involves a ton of research and then a ton of interviews just to, to get as many perspectives as I can. And, and hopefully, I, clearly, at least according to you, it translated. So that makes me happy. You nailed it. Trust me. The book takes us through some dicey subject matter, some public uh, marriage issues, some drug usage. You handled it so professionally that you didn't sensationalize any of that, and you showed complete respect to all parties. And I think everybody that you spoke with or you spoke about appreciate your approach. Well, thanks. I mean, I I show respect because everyone in the book merits respect, first off. But when it comes to, to sensational items, I mean, there's a lot that went on that season that makes for very, very juicy stories. And, and the way I approach it is, is if it didn't materially affect the team on the field, I pretty much ignored it, right? I, I, I don't need to, you know, pardon the phrase, work blue, um, or, or dig into personal details just for the sake of doing that. But when, when things happen, and you, you alluded to, you know, Steve Garvey's marriage, that that definitely affected the team. And there were a lot of really interesting details about that that were essential to cover in order to understand everything that was going on. So I'm happy to, to dive deep in those situations. But going there for just the sake of going there uh, isn't really my speed. Tell us about uh, speaking with Fernando because of his importance to that season and how he set the tone from the very beginning. of Fernando, Fernando did set the tone. Uh, it, I, Unbelievably, I mean, you know the story as well as anybody. He, he, he wasn't expected to start on opening day. He, he was, you know, barely expected to make the rotation on opening day. But thanks to a series of kind of late-breaking injuries, uh, you know, the, the first four guys in the Dodgers rotation were unavailable. And Fernando became the first rookie in the 98-year history of the Dodgers to start on opening day. And, and what did he do? He went, went through a shutout, which, which was great. Start, people started to take notice. I mean, when he followed that up with another shutout in his next start, more people took notice. When he followed that with shutout after shutout after shutout, suddenly the country was paying attention. Somewhere along the line, I think it was his fifth start, he went three for four to, to raise his season batting average to 438. All of a sudden, people were saying, holy cow, there's nothing this guy can't do. He was fielding bunts and throwing to the right base, making plays nobody expected any pitcher, let alone a rookie who looked like him, to make. And after his first eight starts, he was 8-0, having gone nine innings every single time. His ERA was 0.5. It, 
he'd allowed four runs in 72 innings. It was it was the best start to a pitching career in big league history, and and Fernando Mania was born. And you know, you talk about being or setting the, the table for the time and, and place. One thing I heard over and over again from the people who were there that that really stuck with me was the concept of Fernando Mania in general and how organic it was, how it was a fan-driven thing, how it was enthusiasm coming from the ground up rather than from the marketing department on down as most kind of movements in baseball are these days. And and that's what really impressed everybody I talked to about it. Um, you know, the grandstands filled up with this, this Mexican demographic that the Dodgers had been trying to reach literally for decades and unsuccessfully until Fernando came along. You know, you know, Jaime Harin, who, who is a longtime Spanish language broadcaster, who uh, you started off translating for Fernando early on. Uh, he told me that that nobody in the history of baseball has single-handedly created more fans than did Fernando Valenzuela that season. And, and I find that claim to be totally believable. His his impact was just that great. It was just not the ballpark. It, as we know, changed the culture of the Dodger fan base to a large degree. But during that particular period when he was pitching, you would see businesses, especially if they were Hispanic, they would become close to just shutting down because there was no customers. <laughs> they were home. They were listening. They were doing whatever they could to enjoy Fernando. And so he had a, an impact right then and there, and it just grew and grew um, to today's still be loved. Of course, and that demographic is, is still, you know, one of, one of the stoutest portions of the Dodgers fan base. They went from, you know, wildly underrepresented to, to being irreplaceable. Christmas came to the O'Malley's in April of that year. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love, I'd love your opinion or your recollection, given that you were there. What did the road leading up to Dodger Stadium look like prior to his starts? I mean, I've, I've heard about the people congregating and hawking their wares and the mariachi bands like what what do you recall about all of that i don't want to say this glib without respect but 9-11 we all remember for the days and weeks after there was flags in almost everybody's yard and on the cars it wasn't to that degree with fernando but la respected and and pulled together in support of fernando and it was an amazing sight to see wherever you went. I covered one Saturday afternoon appearance of Fernando in one of the local uh, sports parks where he would come out. Front office had made a, uh, had scheduled an appearance for him. It was police escorted, helicopters above. It was unforgettable. And it was almost scary at that point. We, I believe they, they shortened that appearance to get him out uh, because of the fan base was so happy, so excited around him that we had to get him back. They had to. I, mean, I covered that, you know, that, that appearance in the public park in the book, you know, and those kind of events, you know, they give you know, ball players would show up and give clinics for, for local kids and shake some hands and, you know, be gone. And they, they'd attract a couple hundred people. And, and this attracted thousands yes absolutely yeah to the point where fernando had to hide in a women's room a local public (laughs) restroom just to get away from the crowd until the sheriff's department could escort him to safety i remember getting back on the bus 
uh, or the van, basically, and looking back at him. And he looked at me, give me a smile and a shrug of the shoulders, like, I'm sorry, I can't explain it. He was, he was a very unique human being. I know during my time then, he really, he respected his own privacy. And so did the folks in the organization around him. And so he was in large part a big kid. At least that was my impression. You didn't know what to expect from him. He had a, a sense of humor that he kept tempered, but you could have fun around him. But he was so unpredictable. I remember it was the fifth game um, that he was starting at Dodger Stadium. And to me, that was about the time when he was, he really peaked. And Peter O'Malley had made arrangements for his dad to come up from Mexico to be there and be Peter's guest in, in his box. The town was unbelievable. The city was turned upside down. It was perhaps 30 minutes before the game, maybe 30, 40 minutes before the game. And I walked into the trainer's room and Bill Bueller, our trainer, said, Rich, he says, do me a favor, go go wake the kid up and let him tell him that he's got to get warmed up. And I look across the trainer's room and there on the bench, sound asleep on the bench, is Fernando with a towel over his head. And in the middle of all that chaos and excitement, he was able to take a nap a half hour or so prior to his start. It, it just, I went over, I woke him up, and he nods at me and says, okay. And he went out and pitched another shutout. I believe it was a, a shutout, a complete game. If it was his fifth start, it was a, it was a complete game shutout. And unfortunately for me, it was against the Giants. <laughs> Nothing rattled him. I mean, I, I mean, Mike Brito, you know Mike Brito, the longtime Dodger scout, um, who who ended up, you know, who who was the guy who scouted him initially. When he first told Fernando that he was from the Dodgers, he said Fernando didn't care. Like it, it didn't affect him that he was this rural kid from rural Mexico being scouted by a big league team. Okay, that's great. And 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 he also recounted to me trying to get information from Fernando following his visit to the White House. I mean, so strong with Fernando mania that he garnered an invitation to visit Ronald Reagan and Mexican President Jose Lopez Portillo at the same time uh, in, in a White House, White House reception. Brito asked how it was, and Fernando's like, yeah, it was all right. Pretty, like, he, he was completely nonplussed. It did not it ruffle his feathers at all. The, the guy was, was I mean, he had ice water in his veins from top to bottom. He was riding a tremendous wave, and everybody from Tom Lasorda to Ronald Reagan wanted to be next to him. He was a magnet. That's all I can say. Yeah, well, not everybody gets their own mania named after them. <laughs> not yet, Jason. You're working on it. You're working on yours. When you when you spoke with Fernando, was it difficult to get information out of him? Uh, were you disappointed or were you pleased? How did it go for you for the book? Yeah, it didn't go particularly well. I mean, I, I had heard Fernando was one of my later interviews, and I, I, I use the term interview very loosely. Um, you know, I, I'd asked lots of people about him uh, and what he was like and what, and I asked reporters what it was like to interview him. And they all told me the same things. Like, you're, you're not going to get anything. Like, he just doesn't like to talk to the media. But on the flip side, he's very easy to find. <laughs> he works for the Dodgers. Right. He's a language broadcaster. And everyone knows that prior to game time, he is he can be found in the press lounge eating a meal and usually alone. So, you know, that's where I found him. I, you know, I, I did several research trips to Los Angeles. Found found Fernando there in the press lounge. I sat down with him uh, and and told him I was writing this book. 
and, and asked if he would speak with me. And he's like, yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not interested. Thanks anyway. I mean, he was very polite about it, but, but, but he was not interested. I said, look, you know, I, I don't, I don't have any restrictions. We can talk about whatever topics you want. We can spend as much or as little time as you want. Even 10 minutes would be great. If you have it for me, I'll work around your schedule. He said, no. I, I, I rephrased the question probably eight different ways. And, and he was unfailingly polite and he just did not want to talk. And, you know, it's, it's hard to fault somebody for that. He's allowed to his privacy. Um, you know, l- luckily for me, there was so much contemporaneous reporting about Fernando, which if you look back on it, you will see the same reticence to speak then as I found myself. Firsthand quotes are, are almost non-existent. Um, lots of details about him have been filled in around his own personal opinions, and I use those details uh, to the fullest extent possible. But but getting getting his own recollections was was not doable for me. And I'm sure you know you wouldn't take it personal. I believe anybody that walked up to him or even asked through channels, you were going to get the same reaction. So. Sure, sure. I mean, he he it, it's it's funny because he speaks for a living into a microphone, but he doesn't like to talk about himself. And you know, I, I really actually can respect that quite a bit. He could he could be playing up his fame to a, a ridiculous degree, considering you know how how impactful he has been in the Mexican baseball community, but he doesn't. Let's do a 180 on that as far as personalities. Sadly, we lost Jay Johnstone a few days ago, and that is one person that was golden to me throughout my time at the ballpark. You could not lose it. If you hung with Jay, you were on the fence of getting in a lot of trouble. Uh, and and I'd have to remind him, look, I'm easily replaced. You're not. You can carry leverage around here. I cannot. Uh, but it was a wild and fun ride with him. I believe I put out in, in a few words and reflection this week. Uh, there's two photo files, one of Jay that's public and one that's not. And it's based on his sense of humor and where it went. And I had a total blast in baseball. We'll miss this man. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, when you when you sat down with Jay, tell me how did that go? Well, I, I sat down with Jay much much as I do with all my kind of book interview subjects with probably twenty pages of questions. Right. I I, I go deep as as best I can. Um, and <laughs> Jay Jay was always open and happy to talk about everything, but he was focused on the levity. He was focused on the pranks he was able to pull. He, and he is clearly so delighted, 40 years after the fact, uh, at, at what he was able to pull off. You know, he's written three books about baseball pranks, mostly focused on his own, but also talking about other players. Um, and, and he brought all three books with him. And we sat down and he just flipped through those pages. And we talked about the pranks he pulled uh, for hours and hours. And it was it was delightful. I mean, he was you such a lighthearted guy. It was almost like talking to a little kid in how much delight he took in it. And looking back, talking to the other Dodgers about him, I could really see how, as annoying as some of them may have found him, they all respected the fact that he frequently turned what could have been an ugly, temperamental clubhouse into something much different and something much lighter. Everyone responded to that. I received an email from Peter O'Malley yesterday, actually, on the subject of Jay, and Peter shared with me, he says, Rich, I don't believe we've ever had a ball player that was more fun, more involved, and 
and built that camaraderie in that clubhouse than Jay did. And that's a pretty heavy compliment coming from Mr. O'Malley. It, it is. I mean, I, I wrote um, some thoughts about him when I found out about his passing on, on my blog at baseballcodes.com, um, which actually is illustrated with, with two of your amazing photos. Thank you for sending those along. And And I realized as I was writing it that one of the reasons all these pranks worked is that there was no political agenda behind them. There was no malice behind them. He, he didn't have, he didn't have any motivation other than to stir things up in a funny way. <laughs> and, and Lord knows, I think baseball would be better if we had more people like him. Throughout those years with all the pranks, he, in addition, absolutely deserved a spot on that roster of whatever ball club he was there. He, he was a very good pinch hitter. I mean, he was almost never a regular player during his 20 year career. But he was, he was a great bench player. You know, you, you talk to enough baseball people, and you'll hear over and over again, everybody on a team has a role. The, the guys who can be longtime bench players are the guys who understand that you can maximize that role as well. There are ways to be a great bench player. Um, and some starting players never figure it out. And once they lose their starting role, they're out of baseball. But Jay Johnstone figured it out and, and made a decades-long career out of it. In the 1981 season, actually the World Series, Jason, you may agree with me, Jay never got enough credit for what I thought was a big turning point in that World Series when he hit the home run. And then it was followed up, I believe, by um, Jaeger hit one soon after. And that turned that Yankee series. Um, Yeah, they were about to go down three games to one. And that's, I mean, for a team that that made a living digging itself out of postseason holes, that may have been too deep a hole for them. Um, but but Jay came through exactly when he should. I mean, and, and then he kind of made a he made a living of that too. I mean, he was asked to pinch hit in situations where no one expected anything of him. In particular, you know, when he was still pulling on his uniform, having dragged the infield at Dodger Stadium, <laughs> and Lasorda thought he'd show him by by having him pinch hit immediately. Johnstone is literally buckling his belt as he walks to the plate and ends up hitting a pinch home run. And he he just loved it. That was Jay being Jay. I would love to hear, Rich, um, you alluded to getting into either trouble or the verge of trouble with Jay uh, while you were around the team. What stories jumped to mind for you? Jay Jay came up to me and says, Rich, he says, I've got something. I need." He's always coming up to me and saying, Rich, I've got this. Let's photograph this or that and so forth. And uh, there was times where I would do head and shoulder portraits twice a year so that what we would refer to as mug shots publicity, head and shoulders. Well, if Jay was involved, I could never get it done because he'd either come down and clown around or he would recruit some friends, like whether it was Jerry uh, Royce, which was his partner in crime. And in the one year or so that we had Don Stanhouse, can you imagine the chaos with those, those three? And we had a total blast. It was just silliness on top of silliness. And it kept everybody very loose under stressful situations. But one day in particular, Jay comes up to me and says, Rich, let's go take a picture. And what did he do? He went and bought a pair of phony fake glasses. And let's just say the nose was not a normal nose. It was a part of the uh, of the male anatomy was the nose. <laughs> and so we, we had our share of laughs with it, took some pictures and then the next day I handed them an eight by 10. That's where I made the mistake. I should never have given it to him. 
because before six o'clock, seven o'clock rolled around that evening, he had gone in and in Tommy's office, there are, there's very few wall space left because of all these eight by tens of his friends and celebrities on the walls. Now, it was a routine that if the Dodgers won the game, the local telecast would come in, they'd grab a comment or two from Tommy in time for the 11 o'clock news. So Tommy was used to sitting at his desk, eating his post-game meal, and making comment for the different TV stations. And in the background over his shoulders are all the celebrity pictures. Well, leave it to Jay. He went in with intent, and he removed one of the celebrity pictures and put that picture of him that I had just given him in the frame. I go, I'm going to lose my job. And so for the first three or four innings during the game, I'm sweating it. I'm like, I don't know what to do here. And to be part of that group around there, you have to escape. You have to roll with it. And they don't want anybody ratting them out. But I was in a dilemma. Tommy was unaware of it and would never have noticed it. Well, about the fourth inning, I'm in the photo well next to the dugout. And Bill Bueller comes over to the end of the dugout and says, Rich, motions to me. And he says, don't stress. I took it out of the frame. <laughs> I, I lived to see another day. And, um, but that's Jay. And, and he just pushed the envelope as much as he could. But I know that that would have been the end of my Dodger experience. Is this in one of those non-public uh, photo wells or yeah. <laughs> photo buckets you, you mentioned? Yeah, that's in that, and then that file, as you can imagine. So, but he was a big kid and, and he had a huge, huge heart. He was very unselfish. It was special, special being around him without a doubt. Yeah. I mean, he, he and, and Royce and Sandhouse, like you said, were, were not so together. Um, <laughs> the, 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 the one time Johnstone talks about it. I talked to him about it. I talked to Royce about it when they, took down all of the photos off of Lasorda's wall, dozens and dozens of photos, and replaced them with three photos, one each of John Stone, Royce, and Stanhouse. Uh, and, and I can't describe those pictures to you either. <laughs> see, that's one thing that I was never able to figure out is what, what those pictures were. Well, I can't discuss them in detail because I, I'm, they're just guys being guys, you know, lighthearted stuff, being silly, but um, nothing – Nothing terrible. It was just whatever they could do to rattle Tommy, and that's what their intent was. And it was all good natured. That's it's it's very funny. It's very funny. And and you know I, I said it before, but I, I I don't think it can be overstressed. Um, w- without that aspect of the team, I think that clubhouse looks very very different than than it ultimately did. It, it did create a balance, which was very good. That was a a strange season, which you point out extremely well in your book is 77-78, they came very close. But that team, by the time it reached 81, was in transition. They were looking to Albuquerque for new blood, young blood. And so everybody saw it. It was written on the wall that there was going to be major changes and that transition was going to take place. If they're not going to do it in 81, it may not happen. And actually, it didn't happen until 88 um, when they went through some very lean years and Fred Clare was given the, the chance to be the architect and he pulled it together in 88 and 
redesign that team. And that's now what over 30 years of having the last championship. But 81, they were knocking on the door of not having other chances. So I think it was the, the, the combination of veterans and the new, new blood that was showing up might have caused some tension, but it also gave incentive for everybody just to turn up that adrenaline and they pulled it off. Yeah, it's true. And, and you know, that infield, as you well know, was, was together not only longer than any other infield in big league history, but twice as long as any other infield in big league history. And, and those guys knew that this was their last years together. Like, right. No one was totally sure which of them would be going. They all had their. They actually did. They, they did know. They it. knew one was going and that was Davey. That was Davey. Say, say wasn't sure. Like say was gone the next year. I mean, they were all gone within a couple of years, except for uh, Bill Russell. But th- they knew that if they were going to win a championship together, that was it. And and that was powerful motivation for them. As you found out in talking with them, that was a, a quartet that was not actually going to you, – you weren't going to find them going out to dinner after a game together or sitting in a bar. Uh, that was just not going to happen. But they were extremely tight group when it came to – on the field and they they handled business well but i remember in the at the end of the 81 season might have been the last road trip in atlanta and i was paid a very nice compliment by steve yeager steve came to me and says rich would you like to join us it was steve who took the initiative yeager and he got together the four guys myself and maybe one or two other folks and we went to lunch he wanted to have a one-time lunch with the la- the four guys because he knew they weren't going to have that chance to do it. And so that was a special moment that was just off the radar. It was very, it was very uh, cool to be a part of that. Hmm. And how, how did that lunch go? It went extremely well. You would never have known that there was any tension or so forth. It wasn't superficial. Uh, everybody kicked back. They laughed. They had a good time. There was good natured needling. It was just a nice, Nice experience to see. That's, and that, yeah. that's what Steve Yeager's intent was, and, and he accomplished it. Great to hear that. And, you know, those are the kind of things that, that are underrated when it comes to judging players in retrospect. But Yeager having that perspective and insight to, to pull that together is, is very impressive. I mean, he'd been around as, as long as any of them. They all had come up with Tommy in, as minor leaguers. And, and I think <laughs> Yeager clearly knew the dynamics of that quartet and understood what, what a moment like that must do for them. And I, I think he also appreciated, Jason, the situation because he was, at that point, considered the old guard uh, with a young Mike Sosha over his shoulder. He, I think he saw the big picture of that core group that he came up through Albuquerque in the system with Tommy and the, and, and the guys. And I think they, he probably felt the need Maybe he wasn't doing it just for those four guys. He was doing it for the five. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And Lord knows it helped. Uh, <laughs> it it did, didn't hurt in the postseason, and it almost definitely helped. They they came together uh, like like nobody's business. Come back to 1981, watching the World Series as a 11 year old. Were you rooting for the Dodgers or were you a Yankee? Uh, well, yeah. I mean that that was a tough World Series for me because I I certainly. Could not root for the Dodgers, um, but I also have no affinity for the Yankees. So it, 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 that was, you know, that was just kind of a wash for for eleven year old me. If, if that kind of thing happened today, I would, you know, I would have lots of reasons to kind of root for players on both teams. 
Um, but you know, as an 11 year old, you, you don't, you don't parse it that much. <laughs> it's, it's just kind of the, the overall entities. And then I, I had a hard time rooting for either of them. As an 11 year old, there was such a different dynamic as far as being a giant fan at Candlestick or going to a game at Dodger Stadium. Did you have the chance to take in any games at Dodger Stadium as a child? I did. I mean, and it was just one more way in which the Dodgers were vastly superior to the Giants. You know, Candlestick was miserable. I loved it, and I continue to love it. I love my memories of it. I wish I could go to another game there. But there's no mistaking the fact that it was inhospitable to players and fans alike. Um, But, you know, one, one great thing about Candlestick was that the visitor's clubhouse was not connected the visitor's dugout was not connected to the clubhouse via tunnel. So the, the visiting players had to emerge from the right field corner and, and walk down the line to reach their dugout, which gave us as fans a chance to boo heartily when, you know, when the Dodgers were in town. Here, here they are coming to their dugout. And what I remember most is Tommy Lasorda eating it up. He loved that walk. He would blow kisses every step of the way, big grin on his face. And, of course, it just made us matter than anything, which was his point. You know, it, it, it kind of, it, I don't want to say it made me love him as a kid, but it definitely makes, the memory makes me love him as an adult. I, 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 I totally respect that. Dusty Baker. I've known him during those times to be a direct, very honest, and not shy. How did you deal with Dusty if you had a chance to talk with Dusty? I did. I mean, I, I, I interviewed Dusty a lot when he was managing the Giants. Uh, and I knew I knew what he was all about. The guy has more gravitas than anyone I've ever been around in baseball. Um, he commands a room in in a fairly unique way, and and he is a purveyor of wisdom, both both baseball wisdom and and you know kind of life lessons. Like so many of his his pregame press sessions would just kind of devolve into being a human, not not, not being a baseball manager, just being a human. And I picked up so much from those. You know, even even when I didn't really have a question for him, just listening was was always edifying. Um, so he was one of the interviews I was most looking forward to. I spent a long time with him at his house uh, up in the Sacramento area. You know, luckily for me, that was uh, in his, his fallow period between the Nationals and the Astros. So he was not otherwise occupied with the baseball team and had time to make. And and he gave me exactly what I thought he would. He, he spoke unvarnishedly about whatever happened, um, up to and including cocaine use on the team, right? I, I there were, there were topics I, I don't want to say I was reluctant to bring up, but, you know, I brought up with a little bit of trepid- trepidation, not knowing how he or anyone else on the team might react. But, but he gave me, as he always does, he gave me the honest truth. And I think that's part of what made him such a great clubhouse leader. Uh, you know, we talk about Jay Johnstone lending balance to that clubhouse with levity. Uh, you know, Dusty Baker brought balance to that clubhouse by bringing everybody together. He was the guy that everyone related to. He spoke Spanish, so the Hispanic guys related to him. Um, he hung out with some of the pitchers, so they related to him. He got along with the young guys and the veterans who were there before him. Steve Garvey loved him. He was one of, he, I mean, Dusty Baker's affection for Steve Garvey was one of the you know, primary things from, from my perspective that, that buoyed Garvey's clubhouse standing. Um, he, he kept everyone from splintering when they might have otherwise, and I think that was huge in them not coming apart at the seams when they fell into an almost insurmountable hole against the Astros in the first round and an almost insurmountable hole against the Expos in the second round and an almost insurmountable hole against the Yankees in the World Series. Dusty may not have done anything on the field, especially in the World Series after he injured his wrist, but his his clubhouse presence was undeniable. I'd have to agree with you. He was the bridge and he was the leader on that ball club. 
are. I mean, one, one thing you get from Dusty today, to this day if you talk to him, is so, so many of his baseball maxims come from Hank Aaron. I mean, he came to the big leagues and learned from Hank Aaron as a teenager. How lucky uh, is that? <laughs> oh, my God. And, and he did not let it go to waste. You know, you're talk, you can talk to him today about anything, and you know, all of a sudden he'll say, you know, Hank always said, and you'll hear that over and over, Hank always said, he pays attention to people who have wisdom to offer, and he absorbs it, and then he, he, he integrates it into his, his own life. Jason, when you look at your book in its entirety, and you got your first print, and you're holding that in your hand, what were you most proud of? Was there any particular segment or section or revelation or sharing that you were in particular proud of? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, digging into a lot of details that hadn't been surfaced before is, is always nice. Uh, I think for me, telling a cohesive story with a lot of disparate parts is the key thing. So I, I look at it more at a 10,000 foot view um, and, and and realize that, you know, I took a lot of tiny little segments and stitched them into kind of a big fabric. For me, one thing I, I was very proud of was getting what I did from the people I talked to. Um, I'll put this in context. Uh, my previous book, Dynastic, Bombastic, Fantastic, was about the swinging A's of the early 70s. You know, the guys who gave, gave this team of Dodgers their first World Series loss in 1974. That team was known for its personalities and outspoken nature. And when I spoke to them, you know, 40, 45 years down the road, they didn't disappoint. Everyone I talked to was completely open, completely honest about everything, gave me as many details as they could. Uh, it was unbelievably easy and gratifying. Uh, the difference between that A's team and this Dodgers team is that so many of these Dodgers either continue to work for the Dodgers or live in L.A. and are at the ballpark all the time that they were understandably reticent to dig into some of the, you know, the less savory details. Uh, and I get that. And, you know, I pushed as best I could, but you know, I'm not going to push too far. And and I was still able to get the truth about what happened by piecing together, you know, Ron Say might not say everything about this one confrontation, but I can take the little piece he gave me somewhere else and and build more upon it. And and I was able to do that to uh, to a satisfying degree. I just embraced the chance to see a revisit to that season. And that's what you presented to us, and you did it phenomenally. Well, thank you, Rich. Um, and that, that was the motivation for writing the book in the first place. It was also the, mo the motivation for my ace book, is that these were not only great teams, but great teams with really interesting backstories. And they had been more or less forgotten. And, you know, in, in, in the A's case, they'd been forgotten altogether. Um, you know, I, I say all the time, you walk down Main Street in Cooperstown, New York, and all those shops, and right. you nothing but Yankees and Dodgers and Red Sox and Cubs, and you know, hardly a sign of you, this this seminal A's team from the 70s. In the terms of the 1981 Dodgers, they've been sublimated to, to the 88 team. Like, that's what everyone remembers. And I found that firsthand, talking to Dodgers fans. You know, not, not, the, not the diehards who know better, but the casual Dodgers fans who say, Oh, you're writing a book about 1981 Dodgers. Boy, that that Kirk Gibson sure was something. So I, I did I did my best to uh to correct the record. How much cooperation did you get or didn't get from the current ownership? The, the current, I mean, I don't I don't want to speak badly. They they were not particularly helpful when it came to making players available. 
Um, I had to do a lot of that myself. They did give me access to the ballpark and the clubhouse, and that helped. The one person who was extremely helpful was Mark Langell, the team historian. I love that guy. I mean, the Dodgers have done it right by creating his position and then filling it with him. It was a perfect position, and he's the perfect guy for it. So he was unbelievably helpful. Um, But the Dodgers don't seem particularly eager to promote themselves via outside work. I mean, I don't, I don't know if you felt this because you work for the team, but you know, they, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have a book signing at the ballpark, which, you know, is their right, I guess. Not, not, I guess it is absolutely their right. Um, but you know, communicating to me, it's too bad. Our, our fans would really enjoy this was, was their message. Okay. <laughs> I don't know why you're not doing it both for me and for anyone else who, who, you know, writes a history of the team. Um, they're very guarded about their brand and about the ballpark experience. And, you know, I, it, it was at times an impediment I had to work around. But luckily it was not too big an impediment. You spend $2 billion, with a B, dollars for a ball club and a storied franchise. And in many ways, they treat it as if that club has got the legacy of the Tampa Bay Rays. It just seems to me that, unfortunately, they are focused solely on this current time period and they do not utilize the legacy of that franchise. That's, in my eyes, disappointing. That is what you, if you ignore the history of a club, uh, I find it disappointing. Uh, I, I think these ball players that you probably spoke to uh, that were guarded in what they say are underutilized. I would like to have seen them or see them embraced. Uh, that's walking, living history. And you just, we just lost to Jay Johnstone. And I just don't see why you're not utilizing your available history. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you, you know, it's in, in principle and in specifics. I mean, I will say that a, a lot of ex-players work for the team. I, you know, I'm not close enough to the team to understand how, how well they are or aren't utilized. My perspective comes from the Giants because I have worked alongside them you know, from, from the press aspect for many years, and they are always having reunion days and, and trying to play up uh, their historic teams. And, you know, let's be frank, apart from those three championships, the Giants' historic teams are not anywhere close to the Dodgers' historic teams. Let me ask you a question. Why have you done one on the Giants, or is that in, in the works? No, I mean, honestly, the, the baseball book market is drifting away from – examinations of a team in a season, uh, as I did with the Dodgers, as I did with the A's, although that was three seasons. Um, And the other factor is that the Giants haven't had as compelling a story as this to to merit the kind of book-length examination I would want. Maybe one of the championship years would qualify. Maybe the entire run of championships would qualify, although um, I don't think there's enough perspective on it yet to, to really give it that that kind of look that I'd want to. But the teams of my childhood just, I, I don't think would, would merit the kind of public clamoring that a book on the 1981 Dodgers does. I mean, the Dodgers fan, LA is much bigger than San Francisco. The Dodgers fan base is huge. Not that the Giants isn't, but um, and th- this was a unique story. And I have yet to find that unique story on the Giants end of things. You're fast becoming a highly respected baseball writer or author. Are you going to plan on staying with that, or do you have anything, that, a different direction you want to go with? Yeah, well, you know, 
diversification helps pay the bills. So it's not all I do, but it's what I love to do most. You know, I have a, a book pitch out there right now, which uh, I will refrain from talking about until it's actually sold. Um, but it is baseball oriented. And if, if I can sell it as I hope to sell it, uh, it's, it's going to be very, very interesting and will, will include a number of Dodgers. Yeah, I mean, there's there's something about baseball that, that gets to me. I always said that, that sports writing was the perfect career for failed novelists. <laughs> uh, I, I include myself from among those ranks because you you have the characters pre-baked in. You've got the storyline. You've got the entire plot. All you need is the ability to tell a great story and put it in order. And and I can do that. Uh, I can't make it up, but if you give me the pieces, I can put it together. Uh, so so I, I just love doing it. You know, Lord willing, I'll get another chance pretty soon. Jason, I won't take much more of your time. Can you briefly share with our listeners, one, Thomas Charles Lasorda, what was your experience? Man, Tommy was as big a personality as existed in, in baseball at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's so many layers to, to to Lasorda and how he fit in with this particular club. But the fact that, you know, he, he came up as a pitcher with the Dodgers and, and learned to bleed Dodger blue as, you know, as a minor leaguer in Montreal and then as a scout for the Dodgers and then as a minor league manager in, in all these remote outposts like Ogden and Pocatello, um, which, which is where he met so many of the guys who were instrumental to winning in 1981. I mean, they, they weren't, they weren't just longtime Dodgers. They were, they were longer time Tommy Lasorda players, you know, whether they liked it or not. The, the fact that he could come up under, you know, a, a quiet guy like Walter Alston and get more ink as the third base coach than Alston did as the manager. On a national basis. On a national basis. Says something. I mean, he, he was, you know, for, for a guy from Pennsylvania, he was born to live in Los Angeles. He got to L.A. and he made that town his own. He loved the A-list celebrities. And he was delighted to, to learn that they wanted to meet him as much as he wanted to meet them. Right, having 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 dinner with his wife and Gregory Peck, and Gregory Peck's wife was was as big a deal to him almost as winning baseball games. I don't want I don't want to push that too far because the guy wanted to win as much or more than anybody. I mean, he was unbelievably competitive, but but he loved that celebrity lifestyle and and was born into the position he born born to have the position he ultimately achieved with the Dodgers, and he he leveraged that for for all he could. He did, and look what he's accomplished. I see him now, you know, he's 92, 93 years old. And what can I say to somebody that everybody should continue to embrace their time that they have with them? For sure. For sure. And, you know, I will say, like, you know, he wasn't the best tactician in baseball. But, you know, and Dusty Baker has, has gotten that same criticism. But they were both able to bring their their teams together in ways that mattered when it mattered. In very different methods, but but Lasorda could motivate guys in, in a way that I've never encountered in baseball. Um, he was he was rah rah, and you know, some players didn't appreciate it. A, a lot of players did, and even the ones who you know could take it or leave it were positively affected by it. Um, he he rallied those teams around him like like I don't think anybody else could at that time. I remember the the first game in Montreal in '81, and I think Rick Monday would be able to share this story. I think it, the story came from Rick, but just prior to the game, it was a night game, and it was colder than hell, almost to the point where they almost canceled that game. They wound up canceling uh, that Sunday game prior to the final one uh, due to the cold, but it was so cold that in postseason they lined up, introduced each team on, on the third and the first baseline. Before they went out, Tommy told every one of his players, 
take the long sleeves off. No hats, no gloves. And I want you to be introduced, and I want you to go out there, and I want you to stand on that line and act like it's 78 degrees in Chavez Ravine. And he says, we will not be intimidated. We will not have this happen to us. And they did, and they went out there, and they froze their butts off. But uh, that was Tommy. I talked to a bunch of guys about that that moment. And, you know, they were saying, okay, this – We'll do it. It doesn't make a lot, a lot of sense. But then they realized as the visiting team, they got introduced, and then they had to stand out there while the Expos got introduced. <laughs> They're like, it was miserable. I'm like, I, I, it might have been Ken Landro. You know, I asked, so did it help in any way? And he's like, yeah, it helped me freeze my ass off. <laughs> oh, my God. Good people, good times, and great memories. Jason, I'm so glad I had a chance to sit and reminisce with you, and I can't thank you enough for the time that you spent in and your patience. Good to talk to you, and I would love to sit down and you know, just informally chat about this Dodger team and, and, and get some of these stories out of your head. Well, set aside about eight hours. And, <laughs> and Jason, please remind everybody, where can they find They Bled Blue? Uh, they can find it anywhere books are sold. Um, I, I During this uh, recent COVID scare, I helped found something we're calling the Pandemic Baseball Book Club. Uh, we founded it as, as a means to help authors with new books promote their wares during a time that they can no longer make public appearances. Uh, we have an entire bookshop on that site. It's at pbbclub.com. Uh, they Blood Blue is on that page. Uh, the proceeds in part go to supporting independent bookshops, which we all need to do. So feel free to go buy it on Amazon, but but even better, go to pbbclub.com, buy it through bookshop.org, and, uh, and help support your local independent bookshop. Jason, I actually paid a visit to that and listened to your podcast interview by Eric Nussbaum. Eric did a phenomenal book on, on Chavez Ravine, L.A., and, and the entire story behind that, and it's called Stealing Home. And I just, I would recommend folks to, if you're not going to buy the book, and I recommend you do buy the book on both, uh, by Eric and your, but that conversation between you two was phenomenal, and it was so nice to see, and, and very insightful film. Well, thanks. Thanks. I and mean, Eric's book is great. Stealing Home is, is a fantastic read. And I will say I had an in-person uh, event scheduled with him. We were going to do a Q&A back and forth at a, a bookshop here in the Bay Area uh, that got canceled due to COVID. And it was that that spurred us to kind of think about how can we how can we transition this online that would, where we can do it in a way that's not in person. It's and, a great idea and you, you executed it great. So I would encourage everybody to please take, take advantage of it. Well, thanks, Rich. Jason, you have a good day ahead and again I look forward to speaking with you and um, good luck with the book thanks good talking to you Rich bye now